few years ago, I had the opportunity to travel to Asia with one of our other pastors at Grace, and we went to visit some of our missionaries. And while we were there, one of our missionaries said they knew someone they wanted us to meet. Uh, He said he wanted us to meet another pastor who was an Asian pastor in this country. He said, I think you'll appreciate getting to know him. I think you'll appreciate what he has to say and learning about the ministry he's engaged in. So we began to arrange to meet this Asian pastor and never before or since in my life have I felt so much like a spy as when we arranged this meeting Uh, because this Asian pastor was nervous to meet with us. He was afraid to be seen in public in his country with two American pastors. So uh, we went to a hotel room on the third or fourth floor of a hotel in this city and we waited. And at the right time, this man called us and said, are you there? Are you in place? And then he came up and knocked on the door and came in and we sat on the beds of this hotel room and we talked about his ministry and his life. And then when the conversation was over, he left about 20 minutes ahead of us so we would not be seen entering or departing at the same time. Uh, As we talked, he told us a little bit about his life and the experience that he had had as a pastor in this country. He said, the reason I'm nervous to meet with you and be seen in public with you is because I'm trying to avoid additional attention, unnecessary attention from the government. He had been interrogated multiple times for his faith in Jesus Christ. He'd been arrested and pulled into conversations with the police. His family had been harassed. His kids had been harassed at school and in public. Even at one point, the building in which they met was torn down by governmental authorities to prevent them from worshiping. And I remember walking away from that meeting and uh, being convicted in uh, two respects. First of all, I thought when my kids one day meet this man, which eventually they did, I want to tell them, give this man honor. Listen to what he says. Listen to his testimony of faith, because here's a man who has been faithful in difficult circumstances for the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I was also convicted and grateful for the fact that up to this point in my own life, I have not experienced the level of overt persecution that that man had to experience. Because up to this point in my life and in your life, we've had the privilege of living in a place where we can freely worship Jesus Christ without fear of getting arrested or dragged away or beaten or imprisoned or losing our jobs most of the time. And so I was grateful, but also convicted and realized that for most people, not only throughout the history of the Christian church, but around the world, for most people, what our friend, this Asian pastor, experiences, that's normal for most people. That's not abnormal. In fact, what we experience is abnormal. The fact that we have the freedom to meet in a public elementary school in the middle of town, and worship Jesus Christ. That's not the typical experience of most Christians throughout the history of the church. And in fact, when Paul wrote Second Timothy, he was writing in a place and a time where Christian persecution was quite overt and quite serious. We mentioned this a couple of times throughout our discussion of Second Timothy, But the emperor at the time of the writing of 2 Timothy was Nero. Uh, Nero was a vicious ruler. 
And at one point, when Rome burned down, Nero began to experience blame from the people of Rome. And so Nero looked around for someone on whom to cast the blame, and he landed on Christians. I can blame Christians. And so Nero began to tell the populace it was the fault of the Christians. And so he openly persecuted and killed those who professed faith in Jesus Christ. Tacitus, a first century historian, wrote this. He said, before killing the Christians, Nero used them to amuse the people. Some were dressed in furs to be killed by dogs. Others were crucified. Still others were set on fire early in the night so that they might illuminate. Nero opened his own gardens for these shows, and in the circus, he himself became a spectacle, for he mingled with the people dressed as a charioteer, or he rode around in his chariot. That was the context in which the book of 2 Timothy was written. So as Paul encouraged Timothy to be faithful to the gospel and to be faithful to the Great Commission, he also here in chapter 3 tells Timothy that the experience of persecution is going to be normal for those who trust in Jesus Christ. In fact, he'll say in verse 12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He'll tell Timothy that the darkness, Timothy, that you see around you with people hostile to the gospel, that is to be expected. And so as we look at 2 Timothy 3, we're going to see that is to be expected for those who trust in Jesus Christ. And so the question for us is, will we not only prepare for the possibility and maybe even the likelihood that in our lifetimes, the persecution we experience could become more overt? Will we prepare for that, but also will we recognize that those around the world who profess faith in Jesus Christ, they're experiencing that right now, that in many nations in the world, if not most, men and women experience persecution, and they are our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. So will we pray for them? Will we support them? Will we stand in solidarity with them, knowing that we, before long, might be them? That's the flow of the book of 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul says, we live in dark times, but the good news is we carry a very bright light. And the question for us is, will we take that light into the darkness of our world? Through prayer, through faithfulness to Jesus Christ, through trust in Him. Look with me at chapter 3, starting in verse 1. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these, for among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. 
men of depraved mind, rejected in regard to the faith, but they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, just as Jonas's and Jambres's folly was also. The first thing Paul tells us is this, we live in very dark days. Now, I shouldn't probably have to convince you of that. But to be clear, when Paul says, in the last days, all of these things will happen, he's not saying that everything to happen is in the future. Instead, from a New Testament perspective, the last days refers to that period of time after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, while the church is waiting for Jesus to return. It's the last days because there are no major prophetic events left to occur before Jesus comes back. So that in Acts 2, Peter says, we are in the last days. The pouring out of the Spirit on God's people is a sign of the last days. In James 5, he refers to our time period as the last days. And Paul says this will characterize these times before Jesus returns while the church of Jesus Christ works to be faithful to him in the middle of a hostile world. And then he goes on to describe the world. And the very first descriptor that Paul uses sets the stage for everything to follow. And he says, men and women will be lovers of self. That is, first and foremost, the world will become a place where people say, before I love anything else, I love me. Uh, There's a rhyme that Shannon and I heard several years ago that we occasionally uh, remind ourselves of if someone in our household feels a little too big for their britches. It goes like this, me, 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 I love myself, I keep my picture on my shelf, right? And we will remind ourselves of that at various times because it's a funny way to say, look, I am the focus of my own attention right now. Now, I thought about that rhyme this week and I thought that rhyme could be the anthem of our culture. Paul says where things begin to degrade is when we say, first and foremost, I love myself. In fact, that rhyme is overtly at times the anthem of our culture. When I was in grade school, 1985, one of the most popular songs on the radio for many weeks was a song by Whitney Houston called The Greatest Love of All beautiful song. Whitney Houston had a beautiful voice. She performed it brilliantly. But if you're too young to remember the song, let me tell you what the greatest love of all is. Who remembers? The greatest love of all is what? Loving yourself. It's not loving God. It's not loving another person. The greatest love is that I love me. So she says, I decided long ago never to walk in anyone's shadow. I will be out front. I will love me and everybody else will love me as well. A more modern version of that anthem is found in a song by that great poet Lady Gaga, who says this, I live for the applause, applause, applause. I live for the applause, applause. I live for the applause, applause. Live for the way that you cheer and scream for me, the applause, applause, applause. Give me that thing I love. I'll turn the lights on. Put your hands up. Make them touch, touch. Make it real loud. A-P-P-L-A-U-S-E, put your hands up, make them touch, touch. You see the profundity of what she's saying here, that she lives for the applause, right? She lives to hear people scream and cheer for her. Uh, There is statistical evidence that over the last 30 years, our culture here in the United States has become increasingly narcissistic. 
There's a test that they can give to men and women. It's called the Narcissism Personality Inventory. And what they found is that the scores have gone steadily up over the last 30 years. There are questions on that inventory like this. True or false, I think the world would be better if I were in charge. True or false, I know I'm really good because everybody tells me that. True or false, I like the way I look. True or false, I love to look in the mirror. And over the last 30 years, people increasingly say, true, 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 true. I love myself. And Paul says that mindset is the beginning of this downward spiral that he describes in the following verses. Because we begin to love self more than we love anything else. And the result is that we hate others then, and we hate God. He says, they turn to love of money. I will hoard everything that I can hoard for myself. They become angry and irreconcilable, boastful, arrogant, not caring about people. Malicious gossips, literally in the Greek language, that word means they are devils. Because what does the devil do? He accuses other people of sin. They're brutal, disobedient to parents, beginning with loving themselves. They are in a downward spiral now toward hatred of God, hatred of others. And Paul says, those are the times that we live in. And as a result, people who love themselves more than God, who seek their pleasure more than they love others, those people will be hostile to the good news of Jesus Christ because people who want to be their own God strongly resist being told that somebody else is their God. And so they push back with full force against the ambassadors of Jesus Christ. When Peter wrote the book of 1 Peter, it was right around the same time as the writing of First and Second Timothy. And Peter put it this way, for the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all of this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. Just like Paul, Peter says, this is going to be the state of our world, is that people will revel in sin, in love of self, and hatred of God, and then they will hate those who love Jesus. As I read 2 Timothy 3, and maybe you see this as well, I read that and go, this could have been written last week. Because I don't have to convince you that we live in dark times. All you have to do is scroll through Facebook, open the news, and read almost any story to see blatant evidence that our culture has run toward love of self above every other value. Uh, There is no doubt from a demographic standpoint that the United States has become less overtly Christian over the last 60 years. If you go back to about 1950, roughly 90% of our country would say, I am a Christian. Now, whether they knew Jesus Christ or not, they would at least identify with either Catholic Christianity or Protestant Christianity. The nation was generally friendly to 
Christianity. Over the last 60 years, that number has dropped and dropped and dropped to where it stands now at about 65 to 70 percent of the country would now say, I am a Christian. As you look at the stats, the number that has increased is the number of those who will say, I am either atheistic or agnostic or I have no connection to a religion at all. That number, even in the last 10 years, has gone up from about 8% to 30% of our population who now would say, I am irreligious and maybe I don't even believe that God exists. That has been the direction even of our culture. Back in February of 2016, uh, George Barna did a survey to determine what types of religious practices do people view as extremist. In other words, what's normal religious practice according to the average American? And then what is way out there? What is extreme? What is crazy when it comes to the practice of religion? Now listen to this. They found that 60% of Americans who were polled felt that trying to convert somebody to your own faith is extremist. In other words, sharing the gospel, 60% of our nation says that makes you a dangerous extremist. Not just that you're wrong, but you're extreme. 55% said it is extremist to tell your kids what the Bible says, that homosexual relationships are a sin. 55% not only say you are wrong, but you are extreme to teach that to your children. Nearly a quarter said you are extreme if you wait until marriage to have sex. Right? Behaviors and beliefs that maybe in a previous generation were accepted as part of our culture are now increasingly being viewed not only as wrong, but as extremist, as dangerous, and as crazy. And I say that not to raise alarm, but to say this, as Paul told Timothy 2,000 years ago, that shouldn't surprise us. This has been, for the most part of Christian history, the story of God's people. We have lived for most of our lives in a very unusual period of time and place in the history of the Christian church. And Paul goes on with Timothy and he says, Timothy, you even need to know that some of this evil will infiltrate the people of God. That is that there will be false teachers who will come in and they will look good and they will have the appearance of godliness, but in reality, they are seeking their own power. And so they will teach falsehood. He uses the illustration of Jonas and Jambres. Tradition says that Jonas and Jambres were the two magicians who opposed Moses when he was in Pharaoh's court. So that when Moses threw his staff on the ground and it became a snake by the power of God, Jonas and Jambres had the appearance of spiritual power and they did some kind of trick and their staff turned into a snake as well. And he says the spirit of those men will even infiltrate the people of God so that there will be false teachers. And in his day, these false teachers would go door to door. And he says they will find weak-willed, gullible women and they will convince them of their own perspective. Now, Paul is not saying all women are gullible or weak-willed. Instead, in Paul's day, most women, they stayed home, they were uneducated, and they were much more susceptible to the heresy of these traveling teachers, and so they saw an easy target. 
And they went after them for their own gain, their own pleasure, their own pocketbooks. Paul says that, Timothy, should not surprise you because it is the course of God's people and it is the pattern of the world. If you grew up in an earlier time, maybe you grew up in the 1950s or the 1960s, it may be that what you see when you turn on the news or you look at the news today, what you see shocks you because you think where have the moral and spiritual underpinnings of our world, our culture gone? What is happening? And Paul would say, you need to know it's always been this way that the people of God are a minority. Those who trust in Jesus Christ and seek to make disciples and seek to follow him will experience conflict with the systems of this world, which is why he says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And as I said, you and I do not experience the same level of overt persecution that many of our brothers and sisters in the faith around the world experience. We are not beaten for our faith. We are not arrested. We are not martyred. But the reality is that many in this room, you you feel that tension already in your workplace. You recognize if I am too out there with my faith in Jesus Christ, I might lose a promotion. I might lose my job. My pathway in this organization might be hindered. It may be that you have experienced tension in your own family or amongst your friends as you have sought to be faithful to the Word of God and to the truth of the gospel, and you feel that tension on a daily basis as you read the news and you say, our world is out of step with what I believe. As we said, those around our world, even today, even in 2016, are already experiencing the type of persecution that has been typical for the last 2,000 years. There's an organization called Christian Solidarity Worldwide, and they track persecution around the world. They wrote a recent report about North Korea and the persecution of Christians that happens today in 2016 in North Korea. If you look at any list of countries where persecution of Christians is severe, North Korea will probably be number one. If not, they're number two or three. The persecution is especially severe. This organization wrote this about North Korea. They say documented incidents against Christians include being hung on a cross over a fire, crushed under a steamroller, herded off bridges, and trampled underfoot. A policy of guilt by association applies, meaning that the relatives of Christians are also detained regardless of whether they share the Christian belief. That is happening to men and women today who know Jesus Christ. In countries like Libya, Iraq, Lebanon, and Syria, we see the influence of ISIS persecuting and driving Christians away. Many of us will remember the story of the 21 Egyptian Christians who were beheaded recently for their faith in Jesus Christ. Paul would say all of this is part of what to expect. And know that one day, even in our lifetime, we may be them. So what do we do? In the face of 
such darkness in the face of such despair, if you're thinking this is the most depressing sermon I've ever heard, what do we do? I think we go where Paul goes, which is this, that in the midst of this darkness, recognize we carry a bright light. We carry a bright light. Look at verses 10 and 11. Now you, talking to Timothy, you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all, the Lord rescued me. In other words, Paul says, Timothy, look, here is how you walk in the darkness. That is, you look at those who carry the light well. He says, Timothy, look at what I'm doing. In the midst of the darkness of this world, Timothy, you follow those who have gone before you who carry the light of Jesus Christ. He says, I was faithful to the gospel. I was patient as I waited for Jesus to return. He held on to his integrity and believed in the truth, even in the midst of this darkness, because he believed in the reality of the light of Jesus Christ, that Jesus died and rose again, and that the darkness could not overcome the light. I don't know if you've ever been in a particularly dark situation, maybe outside in a forest or maybe in your home and the power goes out and it's night and you cannot see. If you've ever been in pitch darkness where you cannot see your hand in front of your face, you know that it can be suffocating and terrifying. And so you hunt around immediately for what? Some kind of light. You flip the switch, the light doesn't come on. You find that iPhone maybe and you just turn on the screen so you've got a little bit of light because you crave the light. I read a story this week about a man named Gary Lutz who went caving with his two sons who were 13 and 9. They went to West Virginia and they went into a cave and this was a hobby of his. And uh, somehow by a series of mistakes and poor coincidences, they lost the light on their helmets. Gary Lutz set down his emergency pack, which was a bad move, so that they could climb down into a little ravine. He didn't want it tripping him up. And then their lights went out. They got lost in this cave in utter darkness with no food, no water for five days. And in an interview later, Gary Lutz said uh, there was no adjusting to the darkness. There was nothing to grab onto. It was pitch black. But then after five days, some rescuers found them in the cave and they saw the headlamps coming toward them. And Lutz said this in an interview with People Magazine. He said, the lights on their hats seemed like a high beam from a car shining in our eyes. I didn't turn my head away. I looked at it. I loved seeing that light. That's the impact of a light in the darkness. Paul says, Timothy, you and I carry the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the face of the vicious evil of Nero, in the face of dark times where men and women love themselves so much more than they love God or others. We carry the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in fact, the early church carried their candles into the darkness so that over the course of three centuries in the Roman Empire, they flipped the script where the emperor, Constantine, actually came to know 
Jesus. Because one by one, they carried those candles. I remember uh, about a year ago, I heard a Christian musician talking about an organization he was participating with where he was encouraging people to donate money to countries where there were refugees and where there was persecution. And he said, you know, I'm one guy. And he said, sometimes in the face of all of this darkness around us, in the face of ISIS and all this persecution and all these refugees and everything we see in our world, he said, I wonder, what can I possibly do? I can't fix ISIS. But he said, I look at what God's people have always done and I say, what we do is we light our little candles one by one by one and we just push back the darkness until Jesus returns. That's the calling on our lives. And Paul says, Timothy, you watch as I do this and you pay attention to those men and women who do it well. That's the emphasis of Hebrews chapter 11, by the way, the hall of faith. Is there are men and women who have gone before who have walked in faith even when they experience persecution, even to the point of death, because they have the light of Jesus Christ. What is the light that we have? John describes it in John chapter 1. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In fact, uh, in, in the original language, that the darkness is not overcome. It has that idea that the darkness can't even really understand it, can't grasp it, can't catch up to it, and definitely can't overcome it. Nothing in the world can snuff out the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you and I have been entrusted with the message that the death and resurrection of Jesus means all of the sin, all of the death, all of the evil in the world can never snuff out that light. And if you believe in Jesus Christ, you carry that light in yourself through the power of the Spirit who lives in you. So that in 2 Corinthians, Paul would say this, for God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. It's a dark time, but we have a bright, bright light. This is the message that drove Paul and the apostles to keep going, even when times were dark. If you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, the message of 2 Timothy, the message of the Scripture is that Jesus died for all of our sin. And maybe you're here and you say, you know what, that that darkness is really in me. I feel it in me. I know that I fit the description in some ways of 2 Timothy 3. I love myself. I love money. I love pleasure more than I love God. And I don't know what to do. And the message of the gospel is that Jesus died for all of that sin and he rose again. And through the power of the Spirit, those who know Jesus can walk in obedience day by day and eventually experience eternal life and complete freedom, and complete victory over sin. That's the light we carry. So in the face of all the darkness, we simply, day after day, take our candle to work, to our neighborhood, to our families, even in the face of the type of persecution some of us experience in mild ways, whether it is being mocked for what we believe 
whether it is losing an advancement at work, whether it is experiencing tension with our family. We carry that light. And we constantly as well keep in mind our brothers and sisters who right now are experiencing the type of persecution that was going on in the first century. We remember this, as Paul said, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Those who suffer are our people, part of our body. So what can we do? What can we do for them? What can we do as we move forward? First of all, we can pray. We can remember those who are facing more intense suffering because their culture has already gone to where ours one day may be. They are facing intense suffering and persecution, and we can pray for them. I want to show you something for a moment. This is a map of the most persecuted areas of the world. The darker the color, generally the harshest the persecution. You can see North Korea all the way over there to the east of China, dark red. Many areas of the Middle East, many areas of North Africa, many areas of Asia. These are those areas where men and women generally experience the greatest friction between what they believe and the world around them. Many of these are areas of uh, great Muslim influence. Others are simply secular areas where faith in Jesus Christ is not welcomed. I'd encourage you as you pray, pull out a map and learn the names of these countries. If I'm honest, there are countries here... I don't know their names unless I'm looking at a map where they're labeled. Know where these men and women are and pray for them. Uh, November 6th, there's a day that is called the National Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. I want to show a very short video describing some ways we can pray for those in the persecuted church together with other believers in Jesus Christ. So let's watch this and then we'll talk for a couple more moments. If you go to that website that is on there, they will send you some information or you can download some information about how more specifically to pray for the persecuted church around the world. So we pray. We can provide. Same website, opendoors.org or persecution.com, which is the website of the Voice of the Martyrs. They can send you information about how you can give financially or how you can provide for those who are experiencing persecution. It's interesting, as you read through the New Testament, many of the passages that we refer to when we talk about giving to the church or giving to God's people are often set actually in a context of giving toward other brothers and sisters in Christ who are in poverty and persecution. So that Paul would say he will come around to the church in Corinth and collect an offering and he was going to take that offering to the poor and persecuted believers in Jerusalem. So we can provide. And then thirdly, we can prepare. As I mentioned earlier, there may come a day, even in our lifetime, where the freedom and prosperity that we've had in this country for more than 200 years may go by the wayside. The reality is, again, we have lived in a very unusual time and place in history. And that may, that may end. And so are we spiritually prepared for the reality that we may one day experience what men and women around the world already are experiencing? Do we know and understand the gospel well enough to rely upon it faithfully if that day comes? 
I would encourage each of us as well to to read the stories of men and women of faith who came before us who were faithful. Read Hebrews 11, certainly first, but also read biographies of missionaries and great men and women of the faith who stood in the face of persecution and recognized that it can be done by the power of Jesus Christ. And then recognize as they did that even in trial, even in suffering, even in tribulation, the early church took that as an opportunity to trust Jesus more and to proclaim Him more faithfully. So that Paul would say in Romans chapter 5, we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. Proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. He says, in the face of tribulation, we develop perseverance and a rock-solid assurance that the love of God is with us. Acts chapter 5, when Peter was called before the Jewish council and told, stop preaching Jesus Christ. You may remember that he said, uh, we have to obey God rather than men. He said, we won't stop preaching the name of Jesus. That's the one thing we cannot do. And then he went back and, and he told his friends and he told the other disciples, here's what's happened to us and here's the persecution we're experiencing. And you remember Acts 5.41, what it says, it says they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. They went away rejoicing that God had called them to walk a hard but valuable road. And it may be that God calls us to that road. It may be that God primarily calls us to pray and support and be a comfort to those who are walking that road even today. Because although the times are dark, we carry a bright, bright light. Paul would say, light it up and push back the darkness for the sake of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for your word and we are convicted by your word. Father, up up to this time, most of us have not experienced what it is like to undergo deep persecution. We pray if that day comes, you will give us your strength, as as we just saw, to pray that uh, even if necessary to our last breath, we will proclaim Jesus is Lord, that he is the only king we serve. We pray for those around the world, in places, for example, like North Korea, who are experiencing intense persecution simply for doing what we take for granted, for worshiping and singing to your Son. We pray, strengthen them through your Spirit. We pray, provide for them through your people. Empower them for your service, day by day, moment by moment. And teach us to follow you in the same way. We are grateful for this time. We pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.